Um, and we, I think we can truly move towards something that is more of a medicine with a big M. So if you remember back to Star Trek, where Bones, the doctor, had looks had little, looks like a TV remote, and you just hold it up, stopping, starting at the top of your head, and go beep, 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 all the way down your body, scan it down your body, and it, you get this computer readout of what is going on in the individual and then how to treat them. I think we'll get there. We'll get there because that little beeper thing has Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and yogic theory and African medical system. I mean, everything is in there, what the Klingons do. And so I, I think with a different perspective, we can more easily integrate and really move towards something that is respectful to many different ways of looking at it. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Actually, it's a special geological. I've had a few of these over the past few weeks. Gosh, it's actually the past few months as we have been journeying together through this coronavirus situation. It's so curious what we're dealing with. I don't know about all of you. I find for myself, I have less and less clarity about this thing as time goes on. And you know, it probably is just going to take some time and it's probably going to take some people that really know what they're doing in terms of teasing these things apart to understand what we've been dealing with. And the conversation that I'm bringing to you in this episode is about research. Now, I'm not particularly a research-oriented person. It just doesn't capture my imagination in the same way that clinical case studies do, or sometimes just reading the old medicine books. But in our modern world, research gets pretty high marks. There's that whole evidence-based medicine thing. And, you know, on the other side of it, the scientific method, when it's applied really well, can help us to look beyond our biases and help us to look beyond our preferences. And so good quality research can be really, really helpful in helping us to tease apart what reality is actually about. Seems to me, though, that quite often in our acupuncture community, we don't really use research as a way of better understanding our medicine. Mostly, I see that we use it as a kind of advertising. Hey, folks, look, research shows that acupuncture does something, so you should come in and see me. But that's actually a conversation for another day. Today, I bring you a conversation with two talented women who are involved in research and research design. They are part of a project along with the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine to do some research on Chinese medicine on its own terms, how Chinese medicine might help with treating COVID-19 using Chinese herbal medicine formulas and raw form prepared the traditional ways. For me, this is very exciting because it's an opportunity to find out something about our medicine and maybe even find out something about COVID-19 that we didn't know about before. Because this research is not about does it work or which formulas are best. It's really taking this very large view. These women are looking for a big data set so that with good observation, it would be possible to craft some good questions to then do further research upon. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. 
Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. So I'm very excited to bring you Lisa Taylor Swanson and Lisa Conboy. 
I had a wonderful time talking with these two women. I think you're going to really enjoy this. I think it's really important to try to get you as much information as I possibly can. All right, that's enough jawboning for right now. Please enjoy this conversation. Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. Uh, today is kind of a special show. This is coming to you in the midst of the coronavirus time. There's so much uncertainty with this and there's so many questions about it. And we know from our Chinese medicine community that a lot of work has been done in China with using herbs. And there's even been a fair amount of study, but we haven't really done that here in the United States. Or I should say up to this point, we haven't done it because we there now is a study that is underway. And I'm delighted to have with me today Lisa Conroy and Lisa Taylor Swanson. These are both researchers, and they're involved in a project with the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. And we're going to be talking about research design and how you research, how you find out something about this illness and how Chinese medicine can help. So I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves, and then we're going to find out about how in the heck you can wrap your mind around creating a research structure to figure out how Chinese medicine is helpful in this particular moment in time. Lisa Conroy, let's start with you. Thanks for having us on the show, Michael. I'm Lisa Conboy. I am the research director at the New England School of Acupuncture in here in Massachusetts and also part-time instructor at Beth Israel Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Great. And Lisa Taylor Swanson, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a, a dual trained clinician researcher. I had the, the true gift of completing my master's degree in 2001 at SEAM, uh, formerly known as SIOM. And by year 10 or so of private practice, I was in Tacoma, Washington. I really loved seeing patients, but I missed research. I had been a very active researcher as an undergrad. I was lucky back in the 90s to have a paid research job for three years. And really, actually, the research that I was participating in and, and helping to conduct introduced me to dynamic systems theory, which briefly is like a holistic way of looking at phenomenon, you could say. And that was in psychology. And it was that theory that led me to East Asian medicine. So again, I finished my master's degree and missed research. I then completed my PhD at the University of Washington and then joined the faculty at the University of Utah in 2017. I completed some case studies when I was a clinician, something to do basically, and it was all I could do, being busy with employees and raising a family and so forth. And then um, since joining the, the faculty, I, I'm just so happy. I love my job and I have the good fortune of working with Dr. Conboy and others on this study as well as other projects. And really, honestly, I didn't think that I could make a research career in East Asian medicine I, and not be on the tenure track and find the job security that I would hope for. But happily, I'm busy as a bee and all of my work is focused on acupuncture and East Asian medicine's uh, efficacy, effectiveness, and um, that's that's a, yeah. a long intro. <laughs> well, and and for those of you that are familiar with the podcast, Lisa's been on before. Uh, you can go listen to those episodes. We get kind of deep into the weeds 
on some different kinds of models of doing research. Many of us are really only familiar with like double blind studies or, you know, some very conventional stuff. Lisa's thinking is way out of the box. And so I'm delighted to have both of you here. Wow. Look, we got an epidemiologist. We have a Chinese medicine person. They're both research geeks. And you guys are working with SEAM on a study about using Chinese medicine. Tell us a bit about what you're doing with this. The thing that I am most curious about, since I don't understand a lot about research. And in many ways, I think I've got you know, some very conventional ideas about it, right? Double blind studies and, you know, very controlled environments, but we're talking about medicine in the wild here. Love to hear how you guys are thinking about creating a study and then tell some something about that study as well. But let's start with what ways are you employing looking at how to figure out how Chinese medicine is helpful in the treatment of COVID-19? The challenge is we have a real gap in our knowledge about Chinese herbal medicine in particular. We have a, a real dearth of evidence base. There's not much to, to build upon right now. And so given that patients are suffering and given that clinicians are ready to treat them, the, the faculty at SEAM thought, well, okay, you know, we can't treat patients in person, but we can have telehealth consults. And we obviously can't uh, provide acupuncture to our patients because we can't touch them right now. But we can, you know, have a, a no-contact drop-off or pickup of Chinese herbal medicine. And so this study is focused exclusively on the real meal deal, honestly, of Chinese herbal medicine, which is individualized prescriptions of loose herbs and cooked up as a tea and, you know, consumed usually a cup or so twice a day. And honestly, as a clinician researcher, this horrific moment has provided an unbelievably rich opportunity because, again, with Chinese herbal medicine, the reason we have such a gap in our knowledge is because it's so complex. Of course, Michael, as you were mentioning, what we're all used to is a randomized, you know, double-blind controlled placebo study where it's say, you know, one medication compared against placebo. And it's a single medication. The dose never changes. Everybody receives the same exact thing. Right. And Chinese medicine is the exact opposite of that. Exactly. And so we are all on fire because with joy and excitement and working so hard, uh, even without any grant funding, because again, we're studying exactly as it's practiced. So it's what's called a pragmatic design. Pragmatic design. What's that look like? So it looks like clinic, basically. It's really about uh, delivering care as it's typically delivered as compared to a controlled trial, which would be an efficacious or efficacy study where we're looking to see, oh, does this outperform that? And you have to control it. And that's where you'd have, say, everybody gets Yuping Feng San. Well, we're not interested in that. Yeah, we know that's not going to help. But how do you figure, I mean, so how do you decide what's helpful and what's not. I mean, one of the things about, you know, a double blind or a controlled study is you can hold some things steady and you can have other things that are variables. It sounds like with this pragmatic study, it's very much what Chinese medicine is. It's all variable. How do you know what's helpful and what's not? Well, I think that's a strength of the type of design that we're doing. So we're collecting, and actually uh, many researchers 
think this, it's part of research theory, like before you know the mechanism of something, before you know how things work, like A to B to C, the, we should start with description. You should start looking at what is actually happening. And arguably, um, we haven't really done that very well in the United States with many alternative or uh, integrative therapies. We kind of rush into this, the randomized controlled trial. But if you don't know what the mechanism of action is, you can't control, what are you controlling for? So a great design, I mean, a great reason that this pragmatic design is, a, is going to be useful right now in particular, is we get to see how things are actually practiced. We get to put, just like with a randomized controlled trial, we've set into place structures to catch what's happening. So when you have a randomized controlled trial, you know, you're creating the groups, but you still have to figure out what the measurements are, how often you're going to check in with people, um, how long do you watch them for? Do you watch them for a year, for a week? And so we get to put all those structures in along with federal oversight too. I mean, it's federal, you know, this um, administrative and oversight, like FDA oversight type things that we have to do. Um, but we're starting with what's actually happening. Um, so we might get, we, we will get a lot of information out of this trial. Um, it probably won't be this herb works for everybody because that's not how the medicine is practiced anyway. But the goals are really different. It, it would be premature to have a randomized control trial at this point, unless it was huge and we could properly control for all of the diversity that comes in a Chinese medicine interaction. You know, I love what you say here about starting with being able to describe. Okay. And a few months ago, back when we could go out in a restaurant, my family's out. My uh, wife's 15-year-old niece from China lives with us and goes to school here. And we were out at dinner, and we're talking about science. And uh, so we're talking about the scientific method. And so I, so I asked this kid, I go, well, you know, what's the first step in the scientific process? And I'm thinking, make a hypothesis. And she looks at me and she goes, well, the first thing you do is observe. <clears throat> and I thought, the world is going to be in good hands with a kid like that. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I think a lot of us, I certainly did. I skipped right over what is it that we're actually looking at. So tell us a bit about how you are creating this process of looking. And what do you know what to look for? Well, there's a couple things um, in terms of, you know, setting things up. I, I want to briefly mention our team because it's a really dynamic structure. We don't have one principal investigator, as is most common. And it started out with Dr. Kathy Taramina, who's the academic uh, dean at SEAM, reaching out to Dr. Lee Hollander, Ruben, and myself. And, and then by that time, I think Lee had reached out to Dr. Conboy. And we all said, yes, this is amazing. Because basically, again, clinic was happening at SEAM. Patients were being treated. Herbs were being delivered and, and cooked and consumed. And so we knew, um, again, this was a, a ripe opportunity. And so what we've done is build on the 10 questions that we ask patients anyway. And so 
there's actually two clinicians that are on a Zoom call with each patient. And one of those clinicians will take notes in the electronic health record used at SEAM. And then we export that information, which includes symptoms that are reported and then signs, of course, only the tongue. They can't take the pulse. And then we have what's called REDCap. It's a web-based platform where you can structure fields where you have, okay, so how was their tongue? And we have like 30 different descriptors and how is their sweat? There's 10 different descriptors. And so we're gathering, as Lisa was mentioning, really, really dense data. Um, so we can look at potentially COVID-related symptoms. So upper respiratory, GI, there's this, you know, COVID rash, I think they're calling it, if they have that on their feet. That's a really curious one, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. It is. And then other symptoms as well. Of course, we need to know about how, if it's a female, how's her period, you know, just like we would do clinically. So the red cap basically is a mile long and we'll be able to see over time because it's a longitudinal design uh, that's at the discretion of the clinician. If the patient just needs, say, two consults or if they need 20, it's totally whatever needs to happen clinically. So again, that dense measurement will really give us a lot of information so we can see, oh, okay, over the period, however long the patient was in the study, did they have improvement in those symptoms? Did they decline? How often did their scripts change, et cetera? And we also get a field. We ask the clinicians to tell us how they made their decisions, what their diagnostic reasoning is. Mm -hmm. And that's gold. That's so, I mean, for educational purposes, for other clinicians, the research community has, there are different attempts to make Chinese medicine, the, the knowledge that comes out of um, a, a, any, any research study more available to clinicians. And how do you do that? Do you publish, in this study, we had this many diagnoses, or these are the points that were used. But as Lisa mentioned before, interesting complexity, the way that the medicine is practiced is not a list of you know, headache, put needle here. It's an interaction with the theory of Chinese medicine and multiple different people can come up with different right answers. Right. It's one of the beauties of the medicine and one of the frustrations. Well, I don't know who's, who thinks it's frustrating. I mean, I guess research-wise it's challenging. I'm, I'm, I've never heard frustrating. That's interesting, the word you applied. Hmm. Well, I know for myself coming from the culture of the West and growing up in, you know, kind of the, the way that I did, there's supposed to be a right answer to things. And, and often when I think about medicine, it's like, well, there's a right answer. You go to the doctor and they got a solution and it's the right solution because, you know, there's a right answer. I think medicine often advertises itself as having right answers. And one of the things I find lovely about Chinese medicine, there's more than one right answer. Ooh, that opens up a whole different worldview it's one of the things for me that makes it really interesting, can also make it frustrating. It's like, well, which of these right answers is the one to use? Well, I would argue, too, that it, that's true in Western medicine. They just don't tell us that there are multiple right answers. They, they, in, Western med, in Western medical science, and I think other types of Western thought and ideas, there's this idea that there's, there's the truth with a capital T. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And we do research so we can find it. Whereas I think there are other ways of looking at it. rather than finding the mechanism, why don't we see the many different ways we can get up the mountain? And there are many paths that'll work. It's just, a, I think that's a, that's a deep cultural difference. Hello, 
and Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I, I suspect you're right. I'm curious to know what brought you to this particular perspective that there's many right ways up the mountain. I started in sociology. I started in looking at women's health. I've always been interested in how the social world influences people. I mean, I, I'm interested in health. So, you know, I grew up, I was, you know, some, somewhat of a medical family and I was pre-med in college and, you know, I was learning how to be a doctor and they're teaching all these physical things, you know, and different, the Krebs cycle and all these, like, you know, substantive and, you know, physical, biological things that happen. But I was very much interested in, well, what else happens beyond the biology? You know, what what lays, you know, we call it epigenetics now, like what, what lays on top of that? And I started getting more interested in big data sets. And because in sociology, we use a lot of and epidemiology too, we use a lot of big data sets with the idea that, well, if we just collect enough information, and I, I love the term master census, like if we could just plug people in and every thought, every heartbeat, everything going on in their blood, you know, get just everything going on with them and upload that, we'll be able to figure out patterns that are happening. We're not quite there yet, but Chinese medicine is pretty close as far as considering the environment and the emotional state and the physical, what's going on in the body, in the patient's body physically, what's going on with the practitioner. They're closer to that master census. Or they are, they're, they're close, they're in a different way interacting with that idea of a master census. Well, and it's so different from, again, how I kind of learned science as, you know, a younger person. And, and the way that science is often portrayed is that you have an impartial observer in one place and they're observing something in another place. And so you have, you know, you can kind of get to that capital T truth. But what you're talking about is looking at the entire system that includes the person interacting with quote, the sick person right. Yes. right, and the entire environment, including the sociology and the culture and everything else. You know, one thing that came to mind, Michael, your listeners might be interested in a special issue in uh, the journal of alternative and complementary medicine or JACM. It's known as the blue journal. And it's a special issue on inter-rater reliability. And it, it, there's a back and forth, um, Lisa and I, with a colleague, uh, Tanuja Prasad, have a, a commentary in there. But it was a great discussion about this topic of 
Iterator reliability is a presumption that that you should have reliability between two people looking at the same phenomenon. So say two acupuncturists see the same patient, they should arrive at the same uh, differential diagnosis. So anyway, it might be an interesting read for those who are interested. Yeah, I I definitely would be interested in that. It's it's one of the things that kind of pings pings around in my head. Yeah, it's like philosophy of science. We assume there is a singular truth, and and at some point, many people realize maybe not. Now, what do we, what do we make of that? How do we sit in that? Like you said, frustration. I might use the word discomfort. It's a little uneasy, a little unsettling. I think discomfort is a better word than frustration. And now I understand what you mean by that. It's hard to see around, beyond, and differently than the way we're trained to look. And people get very emotional. Colleagues get very emotional about whether this complexity is actually a good idea or not. But it isn't just health. There are other sciences, economics, physics, different uh, uh, biological sciences like systems biology. A lot of different sciences are, are using these kinds of ideas more and more. And one thing that comes to mind is, say, Michael, if you saw a patient, you know, Betty, and come to your conclusions, and I see Betty and come to my conclusions, the fact of the matter is, is those two consults are not the same, because you and I are not the same. And I might ask different questions, or ask them in a different way, or this and that. And there's what's called emergence. There's emergent information that's um, that comes from only the the system components that are present, basically. So you and the patient or me and the patient. And so literally, I might find out different stuff about Betty that would inform my differential diagnosis, and you might find out different things as well. And I think that's a key part, this idea of information that, you know, is basically alive. It comes to like bubble up to the surface, only dependent upon, you know, again, that, that, uh, those system components, those people who are present. I love that phrase, the system is alive. And, and as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, the idea that who we are and how we are has a big influence on what happens in the clinical encounter. Is it right? Is it wrong? Well, sometimes I think right and wrong are very unuseful frameworks. And it's in some ways um, more useful to see, does it, is this helpful or not helpful? Yeah. Just different. I mean, I think we get stuck in so many ways in the West in this binary logic of fixation. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it up, down, left, right, male, female, blah, blah, blah. And clearly we're at a time where we need to think in an expansive and expressive way. And and that is insufficient. This binary logic doesn't serve us, in my humble opinion. (laughs) Yeah. And with that too, is this whole disease, uh, health, binary idea that um, this is one of the things I fell in love with Chinese. I'm not a Chinese medicine doctor, but um, I fell in love with your system, Lisa, because as I talk to more and more practitioners, I, I love asking the question, is there a perfect state of health in Chinese medicine? And they all say no. There's always some movement. There's always some dynamics. There's always something you can do. And that comes from an understanding of who you are and what your propensities or you know, how you happen to operate. Whereas I think in, in American culture anyway, we're trained that you're healthy until there's a disease. And, and stuff like infectious disease, that's, that isn't always the best way to be thinking about your health. Mm-hmm. 
Tell us more about that. Why with infectious disease, is that not the best way to think about your health? Well, I think if you look at the some of the public discussions that have been going on around COVID now, there's this a lack of understanding that the individual's health is linked to the environment's health. And you, you can't not have that. I mean, that's the way we're in, constantly interacting with our environment all the time. And if you step away from that and move towards this idea that, you know, your biology is, you know, just housed in your body and you don't have to interact with the rest of the world, then things like social distancing and wearing a mask and the, the things that we're asked to do for the health of the community be if, you know, I'm not saying, you know, herd immunity is right or any of that. I mean, just the ability to think about health outside of yourself is not encouraged with that disease model. Absolutely. And the thing that came to mind for me is, you know, you were speaking in terms of your relationship of your health to, you know, the environment. And I was thinking of the relationship of your internal environment. So say if I'm prone towards spleen sheet deficiency or blood stasis or what have you, it's almost like what comes to mind is this visual, you know, this tapestry and then my spleen sheet deficiency tapestry is blue or what have you. And the blood stasis is red. And then, you know, if I'm infected with this virus, how it's going to behave in my body, how it's going to bind with my ACE2 receptors and whatnot um, is really going to differ according to, again, what we would say with spleen chi or this and that. And eventually we'll have more uh, basic science. So we know, oh yeah, there's all these high inflammatory markers with blood stasis, what have you. So I know for sure that we will eventually get to a place where we know how that internal environment interacting with, say, a contagion will completely affect how that contagion can influence the person based on their their environment or their differential diagnosis. Well, this is a basic fundamental tenet of Chinese medicine. It's, It's not what's the disease, it's who's the person who's having this issue and how are they responding. I really love this image that you just gave us, Lisa, Lisa TS, of let's just say you've got a certain condition and it's just call it blue. Someone else has a different condition. Let's call it red. Now you have a pathogen come in or a life event or something. It could even be a food and it's yellow. So that yellow that mixes with the blue person, they're going to present differently than when it mixes with red. It's a very simple way of describing how Chinese medicine practitioners look at the world. And yet at this moment, it seems like this perspective, if anything, is getting much less play than it usually would. Or or is that just me and my biases looking at the world right now? I'd love to get the opinion of you two in terms of how the medical world is looking at how do we react and make sense of this thing? Well, I think, honestly, we're about to have a very significant shift, at least within NCCIH at NIH. So that's the Integrative Health Division. The new director, Dr. Helene Langevin, has made several speeches, and she's talking about whole person health. And previously, there were some initiatives about whole systems interventions, And if there was ever a time to try to move these thoughts forward in this way of thinking and this way of studying our interventions, I think the time is now. It's 
it's stunning. It's really exciting. But there's the there's always the the ups and the downs, right? And the gray zone in the middle. And the, the gray zone in the middle is that the rest of NIH is, of course, standard reductionist medicine. And when, say, Lisa and I submit a grant, we ask for the grant to go through NCCIH, but it goes to these various study sections that are comprised of scientists who very likely are not going to be system scientists and not be informed about NCCIH's developing, you know, new developing strategic plan. So who knows how we'll actually get funded, <laughs> but at least our leaders at NCCIH, I think this page is on, I think it's in their book. What do you think, Lisa? Am I too optimistic? No, I think you're great. And also to follow up on a point you made earlier about the understanding the biology of the person. So a red person will interact in a certain way with certain inflammatory cytokines or whatever, that the Western medicine is also moving towards personalized medicine, which would accept that idea of individualized treatment and does allow for more, theoretically more environmental factors to come into play. So what medicine is kind of moving in that direction it, it with a different for a different reason and different models but it's it's easier now to see integrative medicine with a with that actually we can have one medicine because i think the disciplines are starting to be able to get closer to being able to talk each other's language i'm really curious about that one lisa conboy because and, and this is just one person's opinion I often look at this integrative medicine thing and it often looks like colonization or like cherry picking, like the conventional medicine world is going to grab acupuncture, but they're going to call it dry needling, right. or they're going to grab one herb because it's got a particular molecule and now they're going to turn it into a drug. And so on, on one hand, Medicine is just medicine, right? It's just different ways of looking at and working with things. And us human beings have been trying to figure out what medicine is and means and how it's helpful, you know, for as long as we've been around. On the other hand, you got a lot of entrenched interests. And so you guys sound optimistic that these things are coming together. Yeah. That's why I left sociology to do work in this area, because I had a experience with Chinese medicine, I'm like, this is really interesting because it fixed stuff that I didn't even know, you know, were things in my body that were broken. Right. Isn't that curious? And so I started talking to practitioners and I'm like, I'm a scientist. So I'm thinking I got to do science in this area. And then I started looking at the research that was happening. And it, a lot of it, especially, you know, 20 ish years ago was just not, it wasn't studying the medicine. It was studying somebody's watered down idea of, what's happening and acupuncture is just about the needle going into the skin or, and herbs are just whatever constituent they can pull out exactly as you said to make some drug out of it. But I think I can see that the research has gotten better and more respectful to the traditional understandings of the medicine um, since I started in this area. But yes, you're right. We're far, far, far. I mean, even just the study we're talking about today, it's hard to do research on herbs um, be, and for certain legal reasons in the United States, certain oversight reasons, if we all accepted each other and trusted each other, that wouldn't be the case. But that's the way it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. What What are the difficulties with researching herbs? Lisa, do you want to do that or should I do it? 
Um, I'll just take a quick shot, which is, I, it's, it's complexity. There's no question that um, because when we research herbs as they're prescribed by, you know, frankly, expert herbalists who've been um, doing this for so long, it's uh, loose herbs or granules, an individualized prescription that changes over time as the patient changes. And again, it's just like the antithesis of how modern science is set up, which is single agent doesn't change over time. Everybody gets the same thing. So I think we need, well, we need adaptable and flexible, but yet, of course, rigorous designs that can can deal with that complexity that's inherent with scripts changing over time. And really, that's why we had to choose a pragmatic design for the study to start with, so we can strictly observe what's happening and document it very, very carefully. So then later, other questions can build upon that. But, but, but that's why Chinese herbal medicine has not been studied. It's just too complex. And I don't want to Im- imply that we shouldn't have oversight and be concerned about safety and we shouldn't do research. I mean, I think we should, but sometimes starting further up the, you know, if we run to the randomized control trial, we miss the actual mechanisms and, and, and being answering a question that is inherent to the theory of Chinese medicine. You know, this sounds to me a whole lot like doing a treatment in a Chinese medicine clinic in that Initially, when someone walks in, I think the first thing we do is observe what's going on with this person. Who is this person? What might be going on? We don't go to, oh, they walk in with knee pain. I know I'm going to do these points over here. We don't, well, at least most people I know don't do that. We first do exactly what you're talking about, which is take in what's happening here. Absolutely. And, you know, the clinicians on this study have talked about not only taking in and observing and exactly what you've said, Michael, but they're also trying to figure out where the disease is going in this person. You know, how is the yellow spreading or the green or whatever? And so they're writing their script for, of course, today's presentation, but with the the anticipation of where they're moving in the next 24 hours. It's fascinating clinically to try to think about that process of anticipatory care and and providing the right herbal script that will get the patient to where the clinician thinks they're going to go again in 24 hours, 48. Um, And we're having follow-up that quickly because of course the seriousness of what we're dealing with. And then two, because they are changing so quickly over time. And that's just basic Chinese medicine right there. Exactly. At its finest. That's just the fundamentals of what we do. Not just what is it now, How did it get here? What is it now? Where might it be going? Right. So this is about observation. I would love to get a take from each of you on how we can all be better observers, whether that is designing research or working in our clinic or maybe just being in our life and with our families. What makes for a good observer? Empathy wants to come out of my mouth. And this is um, another interesting difference between sort of like if you want to chunk the systems of thought into Eastern and Western, I think that this idea that there's one right answer is more of a Western idea. I don't know, Lisa, I don't want to, I don't want to lump. That's, that's silly. I think some people think that there's um, a single right answer in the world and some people are more relative and a good part of observation is to reduce your if you want an, an unbiased or as unbiased as possible intervention, I mean, observation, 
you want an unbiased observation, you don't have to remove yourself as much as possible. If there's only a single right answer, you're already narrowing your lens down to this binary, is it what I know, is it not what I know? If you're more relative, you can look at something and say, well, this looks like this thing I know, it also looks like that thing I know, it also looks like. So I would say ability to have empathy, but that's it. ultimately it's about relativism. It's about being able to be in the shoes of the other person and um, remove yourself as much as possible, or at least understand your own biases. You know, it, it's interesting. It, it sounds like on one hand, remove yourself. On the other hand, still be present in a certain way. Yes. And understand, you know, if you're a Nikon, not a Canon, you understand you're a Nikon and, and how, are, how does that affect the picture that you take? That's what I was thinking about too. The word I came up with was introspection, that really to be able to see out, to observe any phenomenon, whether it's our patients or figuring out a design for a research study, I think it's important to first self-reflect and really ponder, what do I bring? Who am I? How, how do I hold space with another person, say in the clinical context? How do I engage with others? So yeah, I like that in terms of a Nikon or a Canon or whatever, not having that clarity about oneself and the lenses through which you're seeing the world and attempting to observe that phenomenon. This ain't your grandma's science, is it? <laughs> it ain't. <laughs> it's actually fun sometimes because I'll be working and I'm not a practitioner, so I don't really understand you know, what you're talking about sometimes, but the mechanisms, but I, I catch myself wanting to believe. And then like, you don't, first of all, you don't know what they're talking about, Lisa. And second of all, that's not your job. Your job is to figure out how they can capture what they want to see. You know, how can they can answer their, their question? It's not, and so it's neat. It's neat to live in that place of understanding what you're bringing to the table. I feel like that's what makes our team so effective because we're four women, three of us are clinicians, two of us are PhD prepared. Plus we have Craig Mitchell, Dr. Craig Mitchell, who's the president of SEAM and he's seeing patients, but also been involved with the design of the study. And really we each bring different strengths and views and challenges, you know, to the table. What's also a delight is we all know each other and, you know, just have this very easy rapport because we're all friends. So I think that is, you know, research tends to have this, this uh, air of like superiority and stuffiness. And certainly that's the case for some people, but I think the, the observations that we are making as a team are really rich and diverse because the team is rich and diverse. And it's a, I don't know the best way to describe it. I was trying to think of like an equilateral square, but we're not square. There's four of us. <laughs> yeah. Fractal. Some four aspect fractal. That would be a descriptor of our team, I guess. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. 
These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, you we have had discussions about you in the research that you're doing and that it, you know, it verges with it verges on chaos, right? You bring some chaos theory in, you bring in emergent systems. Mm-hmm. Um, emergent system is a really fun concept. And I hear it from time to time. And, and it always kind of like lands for me as, oh, that sounds right. But the truth of the matter is, I don't really know what an emergent system is. Could you guys uh, help me understand that? I guess the, the shortest one is the sum is more than the parts. And then moving out from there. We can't always predict, even if we know the starting point of something, we can't always predict where, with 100% accuracy, where a system is going to move to. But part of our job is to see what the system actually does. And if something, always, every system, the what it produces, because we don't know exactly what is going to happen, is product or a, it's a summary of all the processes going on in the system and the systems it's attached to and, you know, with the environment. And so actions that come from, if you look at the world and as complex as being a complex system or a series of complex systems, everything that comes out is emergent because you can't predict it. It It's something that's happening in real time. And if it happened 10 minutes later, it would be different. So I think the unpredictability is how it is the big part of emergence that, that I think is exciting. I had an image come to mind and I was thinking about playing pool. And so, you know, if you set up the billiard balls and little triangle and then you take the triangle off and the first person takes their first, whatever it's called when you use your pole, <laughs> I don't like to play pool. It kind of drives me nuts. But the first person has their turn. And of course, we can't predict how the billiard balls are going to spread across that pool table how many balls are going to go in the pockets Um, because of course each person, you know, how hard they hit the angle, the blah, blah, blah. I feel like that's a great visual of this emergent phenomenon that you, you can't predict where the balls are going to go or when or how fast and who's going to win. Well, and then you throw something like an epidemic on top of the complexity of life as it already is. That adds a, a factor of, I don't know, a lot. Right, because originally, Lisa Conboy, you were talking about how our social structures and interactions, social environment, has a huge impact on the individual. Yeah, and you can see at times like this, disparities in health in our country just get magnified. Like mm. if it was fragile before, it's more fragile now, and I think that's one of the frustrating aspects is. Of, of Americans right now and all over the world, people all over the world, but I guess I can speak for some Americans, is that it's it's high. Not only do we not know what's going to happen, not only are there this information and many types of information and people that contradict each other, but it's highlighting problems that are already there. And um, 
it's just an, you know, we're not able to maybe do everything, help everyone that we can because of social problems that were there before and social structures that were there before. So it just, it just highlights, it highlights the, the structure now that there's some stress on the, on the system, on the medical system. Right. It's not like they weren't there before. Right. But now you can't really ignore them. Right. Without question. And, you know, previously people had, you know, either food insecurity or they were in a food desert under, you know, higher incidence of diabetes, hypertension, lots of chronic diseases, stress, financial insecurity, you know, all those things. And then, like Lisa was saying, that stress on the system, both their body system and the healthcare system. And there's nothing more horrible than so many tens of thousands of people dying because of health disparities. It's it's so unacceptable on every level of anyone's conscience who's paying attention. You know, one of the big questions, I think, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, is like, what's the actual mortality rate of this thing? And Lisa C., because you, you've got a background in epidemiology, this, I'd like to hear from you first. I have a very incomplete understanding um, of these things. But again, I, you know, I hear this from people that I'm talking to patients. It's like, how bad is this thing? How dangerous is it? What's the, what's the chance of dying? It's something that's on everybody's mind. And it's like, well, how do we even get those numbers? We don't even know how many people have been infected. Right. It's like, it's like, how do we make sense of just how dangerous this thing is? And I, and I'd love to hear it particularly from your systems perspective. How, how Can we figure that out? And if so, how? A couple of things that make the whole looking at things in an epidemiologic way really interesting is that depending on how we ask a question, who we ask, what observation systems are already set up, and also we we're talking about culture, you know, society and environment, there are assumptions that are made. Like if someone, if an older person, this is too, this is completely anecdotal, but I can give you published examples of the same thing happening. I have two friends who lost their moms and they were just in the last few weeks. And, um, they had, um, they were, it was suspected COVID. So the parents, the two moms died, but they were never tested. It was just assumed it was COVID. So that default category, putting people in a, a certain default category, it happens. And there's a bunch of stuff published on how different cultures use different default categories and it's based on norms and that kind of thing. So I, wanna, I don't want to say that COVID, there's not an epidemic going on because there is, but things like that, that's, that make it harder to see exactly what's happening numbers wise. And then, as you said, we don't have tests. We don't have mass testing. Because a lot of these things, you know, rates and ratios, you need a denominator. You need to know like what's actually happening in the in the greater population. And because we don't have testing, we can't accurately say that. So we do testing in a small area and then generalize that to a larger population. But because of funding, surveillance is not what it could be. And to figure out all those rates and ratios and everything, you really need to know the, the true numbers. And that might come out in a couple of years. We might, you know, that oftentimes happens. We get a much better idea of what happened with a little bit of time. Right. But it's hard, it's hard to get that at this moment, which leads to such tremendous uncertainty in the social field. 
I was thinking about one other factor that is affecting our, you know, death mortality statistics and whatnot, as, as Lisa was mentioning, you know, it depends on what's happening with people. Otherwise, I mean, it might not be that COVID disease has killed someone, but it, it was, you know, a heart attack or something. But I think also as time is passing, we're learning, oh, okay, it's not only an upper respiratory disease. Oh, okay. It's not only GI. Oh, people are stroking out. Oh, kids are having heart attacks. You know, it's, it's our, our understanding of the disease is changing day by day, week by week. And so I think later someone would have to go back and look at other autopsy reports and try to ascertain, hmm, maybe that person who stroked out actually did have coronavirus. Uh, we, we would only know, of course, if there was a tissue sample preserved. But I think that's the other key thing, going back to the colors and whatnot, you know, how it presents for different people, whether GI, respiratory, stroke, what have you, you know, probably depends on what their health was like before they were infected. And Chinese medicine takes that into account. That's that's what we're talking about, the complexity. It's already built in. Yeah. 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 So we've got a we got a foothold on that, so to speak. I really appreciate, Lisa C, your your thing about questions in that it's, you know, it's who we ask and how we ask that can generate such different answers. Makes me wonder how can we ask better questions around this? Well, I think something that else is hopefully gonna come out of this is we are a little uh, xenophobic in this country, or at least there are some people that are have loud voices in our country are afraid of China um, because that's where we think it started. And, you know, you can either run to the fire and help people out of the building or you can watch the building burn down. And I think, you know, co collaborations like like we're doing, I mean, such things could become international. And epidemiologists love data. I mean, so these cross-cultural comparisons while challenging to do because there's so many factors. I mean, to compare, you know, what happened in China to the United States. I mean, there's diet and comorbid disease, as Lisa was talking about. There's so many ways that were different. But if we gather our data together, those will just become factors like every other factor. It won't be, you know, Chinese culture as this monolithic thing. It'll be like, oh, these people eat less meat or more soy or, you know, whatever, you know. It, but with time, you can start teasing that out. And because this epidemic is affecting the whole world, I think a lot of that type of science is going to come, which is, I think, exciting. So we might see more cooperation come out of this. I hope so. Definitely. Hope so. How long is this research study running for? <laughs> and and at some point, will you have more to say about it um, in terms of having a data set that you've been able to analyze? Well, I giggled at the beginning because when you asked the question, how long will this run for? I, I think it's going to be a long time because it keeps growing. Uh, it, it's certainly got its own emergent properties in the last six weeks. So we have an initial N of 500. We anticipate collecting data from 500 participants, but we have really terrific collaborators interested in, in submitting data um, across the U.S. and, and abroad. So we're uh, taking it slowly, really making sure we've got our processes nailed down in-house at SEAM and our data collection processes. And then we'll just see how things unfold. And then we're writing grants. So 
if a grant gets funded, then that'll, you know, be able to help sustain the project longer as well. But but given that, unfortunately, coronavirus is not likely to just evaporate, and given um, the high need to collect information on Chinese herbal medicine, and given the interest by collaborators, uh, again, my guess is we'll be doing this for quite a while. What do you think, Lisa? I agree. I can't say I'm, I'm altogether happy about it, but I think it's going to be the case. But we're going to have interim reports coming out. So for the Chinese medicine community, I think the first thing we're going to start with is case reports for the Chinese medicine community. But then periodically, as we get, um, there has to be for safety, there has to be data monitoring anyway. There'll be interim reports. It, we won't. Our first report won't come out in five years. It'll be hopefully, I mean, it will be sooner than that, but we're still getting all the there's a lot of, there are a lot of fields to think about. And there are some things that have changed at, after we started, or we, we've added to the, the red cap after we started. Mm-hmm. So emergent process. Lisa, yeah. As Lisa said, it is, um, it's, it's complex, but we really want to get it right from the beginning because that's one of the, we spoke about earlier. That's one of the potentially criticisms you could say of, of research in this area in the West anyway, is that there are a lot of assumptions have been made about what's going to happen and what, you know, what is actually going on, but we're, we're trying to pay attention to what's actually going on and change the data collection mechanism along with that. If I'm understanding this right, the, the data that you get might not just show, oh, here's some formulas that were helpful, but it also might show here are some approaches and ways of thinking and questioning and observing that were helpful. Definitely. And also we could run analyses. I mean, honestly, I think it's going to be an exquisite data set for people to use for a really long time because there's, there's a, a, a mountain of questions to ask. For example, okay, let's look at all the Sanren Tong presentations. You know, do we see any trends? Do we see uh, differences within Sanren Tong cases? Um, let's look at Yuping Feng San. Let's look at, you know, there's a, a bunch of Huoshang Zhengji. There's, we've got about 10 frequently used formulas. And then we've got uh, ad infinity options for, you know, any formula can be used with any modifications. So I think the questions that can be asked again within East Asian medicine are really exciting. I want to mention briefly that our first directive is to the profession. And so as Lisa was mentioning, we'll be posting cases and case series to the SEAM website because we want to get Pay, uh, information out to providers. So if someone is an herbalist and really wants to provide care to patients who may have COVID or COVID-related symptoms, there will be, frankly, expert clinicians' information available on the website. It sounds so cool. I could not have imagined when I first started studying Chinese medicine that I'd be hearing researchers talking about Chinese medicine in this way. It gives me great hope. Oh, me too. I mean, Michael, we've been friends almost 20 years. Actually, maybe it's 22. And, um, you know, how the world has changed. And that's the same duration Lisa's been conducting research. We just uh, had a conversation about this last night, actually, Lisa and I. And, you know, the amount of change in the last 20 years with the acceptance of acupuncture in particular, but East Asian medicine in generally, of course, the presence of uh, this medicine in hospitals, billed by insurance, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's really better than my wildest dreams. And I'm pretty creative. I'm a a dreamer. (laughs) And this is way good. (laughs) But I think we can't stop there. You know, really, now that there's this horrible 
uh, moment we're in that's provided this bizarre opportunity to study what we couldn't study before, Chinese herbal medicine. You know, how do we, the way I said it to my husband a couple days ago is I think this project is an offering to, to those who have died and to those who have lost. This is our humble offering of service to try and one, provide the best care possible to the patients at the scene clinic. Two, to the profession, to provide the best data possible that's useful to the profession. And three, to the scientific and medical community, how do we provide the most rigorous data possible to demonstrate what I am biased in my thinking as that Chinese herbal medicine is powerful, it's effective, it's safe, it's deliverable, it's translationable, so to speak. You know, we can translate it to healthcare systems. Um, if we can generate data that honors those who have we've lost, honors the medicine, and then it happens to be clearly and precisely and rigorously enough collected that we can inform policy, then I'm I'm done. That's that's my career goal. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. Well, it makes me grateful for the troubles that we're in at this moment to have this kind of an opportunity to make this kind of an impact and that we have the two of you who have these ways of working that can help us to get this information um, and make it useful to the whole world. Yeah. I wish I knew the I Ching better, but I think there's the the crisis and opportunity. Crisitunity. Crisitunity. That's actually the Simpsons version of it, but um, but it is, I love that idea that you know uh, to wish someone interesting times is kind of a curse, and within crisis there lies opportunity. Yes, the the actual characters, you know, it's, it's just not one of those like fortune cookie things, but yes, crisis is both danger and opportunity put together. It's, uh, yeah. Another good reason to go study some Chinese, y'all. Oh, yes. I wish I remembered what I'd learned at SEAM. <laughs> Lisa and Lisa, any uh, final closing thoughts before we wind this down for today? Well, the one thing that comes to mind is just a little bit of more detail about the study because I think that people might find it of interest. And that is, so at baseline, people are, of course, informed. They provide informed consent. We are IRB approved and all of that. Ethics are in place. And then they have their first telehealth session, usually within a day or two. Again, this is such a critical condition that we are seeing them quickly. Then there's a no contact pickup of herbs. Either they send a family member or a friend if they're in the Seattle area, or if it's too far away, they're mailed. Um, and then the herbs are cooked at home. They drink their tea. Then a research assistant follows up 24 hours later and asks them, are you doing better, the same, or worse? If they're doing better, then that's great. They continue taking that formula. If they're doing the same, there's additional questions that are asked to, to really suss that out. If they're doing worse, they're immediately referred back to the clinician. They're seen again. The script you know, is altered in whatever way is appropriate and applicable. Um, so again, there's that 24-48 hour follow-up after every herbal consult. And then we also have follow-ups later, three-month, 12-month, uh, et cetera. And again, the design is completely according to the patient's need and presentation and determined by the clinician. So patient number 101 may have two consults and then 
2448 after each of those, and then the additional follow-up. So maybe we'll have six to 10 data points. But patient number 102, maybe they're unfortunately very, very ill and slow to improve. They may have, you know, 20 consults and have hundreds of data points or, well, almost hundreds. So just to give some more of the design information in case that's of interest. Wow. I am struck by the the tremendous opportunity we have at this moment. And uh, much appreciation to the two of you and the rest of your team and to the folks at SEAM. Uh, all y'all's listening at this point, we're going to be following up with another interview here in the very near future, talking to the clinicians at SEAM uh, so that you can get the inside clinic view of how this is all working. So thanks so much for your time today, Lisa and Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.